Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Tar Heel Prescription, a student-run podcast at the UNC School of Medicine. My name is Abdul. And my name is Anu, and together we are your hosts for the day. To the first-year students out there, we know that POM is officially started, and if you haven't already, you will be working through your very first histology lab very soon. Today, we're going to be hearing from one of the histology gurus here at UNC School of Medicine. If you've listened to any of the prep modules, you will probably recognize his voice. We have Dr. Gilliland with us today. Dr. Gilliland, thank you so much for being here. If you would, please tell us a little more about who you are and what you do here at UNC. Sure. I've been here since 1988 when I came here as an undergraduate, and I just hung around for graduate school as well and never left that same department and have been here ever since. I used to do more research using, as you'd imagine, microscopy as a technique, but now I do focus more on medical education and teaching and uh, really enjoy that. And I've shifted my scholarship to educational scholarship. So uh, my colleagues and I write articles about curriculum and assessment and, and how you all learn. That's incredible. And as you guys heard, Dr. Gilliland wears many hats. And today we would like to take a deeper dive and focus on the histology coil that students see throughout the various blocks of foundation phase. So starting off, in our experience and conversations with other peers, histology is a subject that very few people have engaged with before their first year of medical school. How would you encourage students, especially those who are new to histology, to approach learning this perhaps new field? So I agree with you, and it's okay if students have not had histology before they get here. We will teach them. If they have had histology, it might be in the form of cartoons and drawings more so than microscope images, Uh, but we obviously use actual microscope images here. Uh, We used glass slides and microscopes until about 12 years ago, and those were digitized to make the images that you have now so we can save a lot of time. You don't have to put oil on the slide and change the magnification and so on. Uh, But to your point, it is a new discipline, I think, for a lot of students. And so uh, first I'll point out that the old name for histology was microanatomy. And and so, you know, that means it's smaller than gross anatomy or macroanatomy. And if you think about it, uh, that makes a lot of sense. In certain organs, uh, like the kidney, you actually look at uh, the kidney almost as if you're holding your eyes up to a a kidney in the cadaver initially. You know, we're we're sort of picking up where gross anatomy leaves off, where you can't quite see it anymore with the naked eye, and then we pick up with the microscope. So microanatomy was the old term, but we call it histology now. It's the study of cells and tissues as they come together to form organs. And so the first thing I would encourage students to do is just to take a step back and imagine where are you in the body And then look for clues that tell you about the magnification. Do you see red blood cells, which are large, in which case you're magnified? Or do you see little tiny red dots for red blood cells, in which case, oh, you're at a low magnification? So, yeah, I think it's important first just to think, where am I and uh, and what's the magnification? Uh, Personally, I remember having you as our small group rooms facilitator for histology at the beginning of MS1 last year. And I loved how you would anchor um, every time we'd look at a slide and look at a a magnification, as you were just saying. um, Now you've had like X amount of glasses of wine and you're standing there looking at the art on the wall. What do you see? Um, And in a way, I've kind of come to equate histology with like the idea of interpretive art. Um, what general tips or tricks would you give students trying to navigate, like looking at these histology slides? So I always love using that example. You're in the, you know, the Chicago Art Museum or wherever it might be. And, and I think it is important just to take a step back and look. I mean, when, you, when a student first looks at a histology slide, they might be trying too hard to see something that they want to be there or that they think should be there. 
But sometimes it's a good idea just to take a step back and, and ask yourself, what do I see? And it's like being at the art museum. You know, if you just think about what is in this painting and how would I describe it to the person I'm with, then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I'm seeing a lot of things because I have to describe it out loud to this person here. And maybe they'll do the same thing for you and you'll realize that you were overlooking certain features or they were overlooking certain features. So yeah, I think it's important to take a step back and really think about, hey, what's there? Instead of trying to imagine that a particular cell is definitely there because you want it to be there. So when it comes to exams, how should students study the histology material? So I think it's helpful to go to the end of the answer file where there are practice images. And, and here's why. The images are not the exact same ones that we used, but they're similar. Because, you know, as students or as physicians one day looking at slides, you have to be able to look at different versions of the same image. And, and so maybe in class you had a particular version of cells in the kidney, and this is a little different, and you need to be able to interpret it like art. And, and so I think that that's what you can learn in those practice questions at the end of the answer file. A different stain, a different angle, a different magnification, a different cell, but nevertheless, it's the, the focus of what we taught. And then you'll find that the question might be simple, what is this structure or what does this structure do? But when you read the little answer rationale or justification, you're getting a little bit extra. You're getting the context for the cell, where it is, what it does, why it's there, what it developed from, and that's really leading directly to the exam. So I think those are particularly good questions. Uh, and then you can sort a program like USMLARX or something else that you might have access to and just enter in mast cell or whatever it is, search for it and get an experience with some questions with little clinical vignettes. And we actually do those in the lab sessions. You remember we gave you clinical vignettes so you understand, oh, well, this is important. This is why it's important. And here's how an image relates to a clinical discipline. So you can you can search for those. Right. And I remember in our USMLE RX questions, we would have histology questions kind of embedded within them when preparing for our NBMEs. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, I think practice is definitely very important, perhaps where I... Uh, should have picked up the pace a little more <laughs> last year. But it's a new discipline, so it's understandable that you have to figure out your own way. Right. Um, just generally, you already kind of mentioned USMLERX, and we've talked about it in the context of histology, but just wanted to see if you could talk a little bit more, just since they're starting POM, about how students should be using USMLERX questions into their studying, into their preparation. So we do choose the questions that are most relevant for that week of instruction. That said, sometimes they look different, the clinical vignette is clearly written by someone not at UNC, but that's a good skill for you to, to get. The answer options may be a little strange. You see that answer choice C is something you haven't heard of and you wonder, oh, that that's, must be correct because I haven't heard of it. I must not have studied that. Well, probably the, the answer choice you haven't heard of is not correct, but it's good experience to sort through those and rule out answer choice C and answer choice A. Um, I think the questions are really good as a learning experience. And, and I, I've noticed for the last 20 years with practice questions that students like to wait till the Sunday night before the Monday exam and say, all right, let's do the practice questions. And I hope that it comes out with a 90, because if it does, then I'm through studying. That was diagnostic of what I need to know. I'm done. I would really advise doing the practice questions earlier in the block. Maybe not the day that you got the content because you haven't yet studied it, but maybe the Saturday or Sunday after a week of content. And you might be learning as you go. You might say, oh my gosh, I remember hearing about this, but I hadn't quite learned it, but here's this paragraph and I'm gonna 
put it into context. Now I'll, I'll remember it when I encounter it in my PowerPoints or, or the next week of instruction. So I think learning as you go is really more valuable than using it as a late in the game diagnostic right before the test to see if you're ready. Because, you know, what if you're not ready? What are you going to do on a Sunday night at 10 p.m.? Whenever you get it Panic. back, it's 60 percent. Yeah. yeah, you need time. So. No, I think that's, that's a great point. I think it's that's something I've also had to like think about of like using practice questions as a way of studying. That was so weird to me to wrap my head around um, from undergrad to now. So I think that, like you just mentioned, it's it's something that, you know, we need to kind of become a little more comfortable with as opposed to using it as just like a practice test. And it, it is a good skill. In fact, you're probably doing it now as you think about step one. You're realizing that UWorld in particular is a really great tool. Mm-hmm. And you'll find with UWorld in the second year that those answer rationales are pretty long. They're, yeah. they're like miniature PowerPoints. Right. The question was really just a stimulus mm-hmm. to get you thinking so that you would look at the rationale and then really learn something as if it were a short PowerPoint slide with you know uh, text and images and so on. So yeah. you can definitely learn from the questions. Absolutely. Um, switching gears a little bit, um, you've touched on this a little bit before, um, but one thing that surprised me when I started learning histology, because I had not encountered it before, um, was just how clinically ap- like applicable this subject is. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us more about histologies used out in the clinical field and how can students incorporate these clinical applications into their learning of histology now? So there's indirect connections and direct connections. I'll start with the indirect connections. Histology is obviously your stepping stone to pathology. I mean, you have to know what normal cardiac muscle cells look like before you can appreciate ones that have been disrupted with some type of pathology. So in that sense, I think we're part of a, a stepwise process that gets appreciated in the end with pathology. We were just early on with the, the normal part of light microscopy. That's an indirect way, uh, but there's direct ways it's applicable as well. Uh, you might remember in the renal block last year, that when you diagnose glomerular disease, it is done with electron microscopy. So all of a sudden, these annoying electron micrographs that seem to have just been a, tools for learning cell biology were actually of diagnostic value. And so you're looking at the thickness of the basement membrane you know, to look for minimal change disease or, or whatever it might be. So that's a, a field, nephrology, where uh, histology or electron microscopy as a component of image analysis is, is critical. Um, so that that's kind of spans the gamut of how histology can be a stepping stone on one hand, but a, a clinical tool on the other hand. Uh, and then histology, obviously, is a way for you to become accustomed to looking at cells. And ultimately, you'll use immunofluorescence uh, to look at staining you know, for diseases like uh, um, good pasture syndrome, for example, example. But until you know normal cell structure, it's hard to appreciate immunofluorescence and, and that type of kind of labeling. And how would you recommend we get to that level of understanding of this is normal and this is not? Oh, that's a good question. I think that's taken me my whole career to know normal versus abnormal. And the first thing that we tell the first year students is you can't identify everything in a slide. So just accept that. And, and obviously we try to crop the images and put the abnormal, you know, or disrupted cells out of the field of view or we'll put a label across a cell that we don't want you to see because it's too hard to identify. Uh, So you can't identify everything. Uh, But no, it's taken me my whole career, I think, to um, learn to look at normal versus abnormal. We're going to give you those labels, quite honestly. I mean, you're going to know 
this is a, a normal slide or this is an abnormal slide. And we've gotten better over the years, I think, at giving you cues like scale bars or magnification values so you're not guessing too much about what you're looking at. Uh, and so I think that's, that's realistic and, and helpful. And switching gears a little bit and more on a fun note, what is your favorite tissue to look at under a microscope? So I used to do more research than I do now, but when I did, I studied the lens of the eye and how it forms cataract. And the lens cells uh, in the eye are really unusual so that they can be transparent for vision. They lose their organelles and nucleus early in development. So they're packed with an ordered array of proteins so that light will pass through and, and refract. But they don't have organelles because you don't want light bouncing back off of organelles. That's how they remain transparent. But what's cool about them is that once those lens cells develop at month three of gestation, month six of gestation, they're simply compressed to the center of the lens and more cells are added throughout life. So they never go away. So an 80 year old person still has those original lens cells in the center of their lens. Once you have them, they're there forever. They're the oldest cells in your body. Whereas skin cells get replaced every 30 days or so and, and you get fresh ones, right? Or the cells that line the inside of the gut tube are sloughed off and, and you get newly generated cells from adult stem cells, but not in the lens of the eye. Uh, they're the oldest, oldest cells in the body and, and uh, they, don't, they don't degenerate. It's very likely that some of the cells are older than I am. That's correct, yeah. That's cool. That is wild. And, uh, everybody you know, in the sciences loves to brag about their cell or tissue, right? They have the best cell or tissue there is. And so we think that about lens cells. Uh, it's hard to beat. Yeah, we like them. And so we'll, we'll often you know, tell people, oh, they have more cholesterol in their cell membranes than other cells. And you know, all these kind of top 10 list kind of things to, wow. to justify why your tissue is better than someone else's. But I don't do as much research anymore. Um, I used to travel to India and set up a lab and we would collect normal tissues from eye banks or cataracts from surgeries. Uh, and the population in India often gets very severe cataracts at very young ages as opposed to mild cataracts at older ages. And so we would collect those uh, and uh, work with our collaborators there who would visit us as well. We'd stay there for three weeks at a time, live in the hospital, and then go out to the rural eye camps and, and also to collect tissues in those areas. And process them for histology and electron microscopy and confocal microscopy. Wow. Talk about another clinical application of histology, right? That is so, that is so amazing. Um, this is a bit of a tangent here, but uh, we know that you're very involved with the medical education scholarly concentration here at the School of Medicine. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Love to. So I am really proud of the medical education scholarly concentration program. Overall, there are about 80 medical students involved at any particular point in time from the four years. That means we get roughly 20 first year students joining the scholarly concentration program and they take one of the two electives in the spring of the first year or the fall of the second year. Uh, but more importantly, then they identify a faculty member to work with on a project, an educational project. And I'm really excited that of last year's 20 graduates in the program, I think close to 15 of them presented their work in the form of a publication or a presentation at a national meeting, a poster or a talk. So that's our goal. We want to get you all publishing for your CVs, for the good of the field in which you're working, uh, for the good of UNC. And so I think we're achieving that and we're super excited about it. But yeah, all of the scholarship is very educationally focused. Uh, when we started the program, I thought everyone would be very statistical and analyzing exams and numbers and values. Uh, but I was so pleasantly surprised that our entrepreneurial students 
really want to create curriculum. They want to create programs that are sustained after they leave, programs that support young mothers in the hospital, or um, they want to start ultrasound training opportunities. They want to create curriculum. They want to sustain the curriculum, and they want to evaluate it and determine if, if they did the right thing and, you know, was there efficacy to what they did. So that's just been so impressive to me. That's where the program kind of took a, a different turn than we originally imagined. You know, again, we thought it was going to be examination analysis and, and statistics, and, but it's, it's taken a better, a better route thanks to you all. So I always tell everyone that you all are you're very entrepreneurial and service-oriented as you apply for medical school, but you don't stop. You, you come here and you keep doing good work, and I think that's an example in the scholarly concentration program. That's incredible. And wrapping up, are there any other thoughts or insights you would like to share with us? Well, I appreciate the opportunity just to talk about the curriculum. And, you know, I'm one of the 10 COIL directors and some of the COILs as they weave their way throughout the curriculum, they get lost. And so, you know, in an effort to be very seamless in how we incorporate histology or anatomy or microbiology or pharmacology, sometimes we bury it accidentally. And so we find ourselves having to signpost the coil and let students know that the material's here. And so this is a great opportunity for me to signpost histology, and so I know the students will appreciate further opportunities to meet those faculty. Uh, you know, when you see Ed Koenig's face, you're thinking anatomy, right? So that's, that's an easy coil, but other coils are, are harder to identify, I think, as they're embedded in the curriculum, and so this process will allow students to meet those faculty. Absolutely. Most definitely, which is why we're so appreciative of you spending time with us today. Um, and thank you so much for everything that you do for our curriculum and for foundation phase. It means a lot. And we can say that as MS2s. So um, I think we've had a wonderful time chatting with you today and um, gaining your wisdom. So thank you for that. Um, my name is Anu. And my name is Abdul. And this is the Tar Heel Prescription.